Hello everyone, it's February 21st, 2023. This week, the mystery of leaks on Russian spacecraft deepens. Now there's one on a progress too. We also got to revisit Launcher 1's failure to reach orbit. We have an update on what caused it, so at least that's one mystery solved. I'll take it, so let's do it, and liftoff. Hey, we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 397 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Hey, Dennis, it's noisy over there. What's going on? <laughs> Evidently, unbeknownst to me, there was going to be a gigantic parade right outside my street. We're going down my street right, right when we were about to record. <laughs> like, it literally started right when we were <laughs> uh, all jumped into recording. When we, when we first started the, the call, David, I could I couldn't hear you. You and Dennis had been in the room for a little bit before I got there. And then um Dennis goes, Wait, hang on a sec. I think there's a protest happening outside and he runs out. <laughs> and then and then we hear like a, a marching band and people cheering and uh and, and yeah, there's a parade. Did you the, you didn't say the name of the parade yet, did you? No, no, yes. Uh, I had to Google, but evidently it is the 2023 Pets of Pima Parade. And so they're trying to raise 100000 bucks for, I guess, the pets of Pima County, which is where Tucson is. And uh, yeah, and David <laughs> helpfully pointing out that having loud bands playing and a lot of cheering and a lot of noise isn't always uh, pets' uh, favorite thing in the world. And yeah. so <laughs> yep. right now... Keiko, my tiny black cat, is currently like kind of walking around like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> she is she is very confused by what's happening. Well, cheers to the pets of Pima. I'm just waiting for, uh, at some point during the recording, I'm going to make like the most salient point I've ever made on the show, and it's going <laughs> to coincide with like some really, really popular float of dogs coming out, and people erupt in applause for That'll the be dogs. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> First in the news, um, the Soyuz MS-22 leak. Um, so actually, yeah, I think that you deserve some applause already, Dennis, because I feel like you might be right. You've had a theory for going for some time now, and I'm mm -hmm. still not entirely convinced one way or the other. But now we have another leak. Well, so so wait, le leak uh, has a, a couple of different meanings. So we're talking about a leak in the coolant system on MS-22. And then are these images leaked images like distributed no, they're without official, but they're that would official. Be, okay. that would be a nice touch if that was <laughs> leaked images of a leak but yeah no this is <laughs> yeah Roscosmos publishing them yeah right right so before we get to it this is uh, Soyuz MS-22 and Progress MS-21 and they both sprung leaks in their coolant system uh, in the outer loop uh, which is the loop of, of ammonia coolant, I'm assuming it's ammonia, that flows through their radiator panels. Oh, wait. Um, we, we, we had tried to track that down like a month ago or so when we uh, when it first broke. And I think we settled on it probably being more of a uh, a, a some kind of um, propane or, or so, some kind of hydrocarbon-based okay. uh, cyclic hexane or something. I don't know. Like Man, that sounds expensive. Memory. That sounds right. expensive and just as toxic as ammonia. <laughs> uh, but Dennis, you, you kind of combed through some of these photos, right? Like, what, what do you think? Can you describe some of the photos? Yeah, sure. So, so what makes this so weird and the, the theory of mine that David referenced before is that this Soyuz leak, which happened in December, uh, coincided with depressurization uh, in preparation for uh, a spacewalk on the, on the Russian side of the segment. And so the fact that a micrometeoroid hit would take place coincidentally during that depressurization seemed too much of a coincidence for me. And so I was a little skeptical about it being a hit. But this picture shows what clearly looks like a hole in the, in the vehicle, in the, in the Soyuz. And so, yeah, it, it seems like it really did take a hit. You've got this hole and it's got all this brownish discoloration including like uh, a bunch of different kind of rings uh on there and that's probably the fluent or the fluent that sounds like that should be the word the fluid coolant <laughs> the fluent <laughs> um yeah so the the fluid uh basically kind of you know uh, caking onto the surface to some extent and um that's that's happened um 
in other uh, progresses, which I thought was interesting, this kind of brownish contamination showing up on the outside, but they typically don't have what looks very much like a bullet hole right in the middle of where that discoloration is. And so even though I was skeptical about it being a an MMOD hit, it seems from this picture that that's a perfectly reasonable thing to conclude. Except, of course, now we also had the progress that sprung a leak in a similar part of the same radiator loop, um, external loop. And so it's almost now even more confusing than it just being a design flaw, the fact that it looks like it really it has a hole in it. And yet it seems like too much of a coincidence. So what I have no idea what's going on now. But <laughs> Well, it, it seems that most people are convinced that by this photo that it is, you know, an MMOD strike. But what's weird to me about it is that there doesn't seem to be, I, at least I can't tell, I don't see any kind of deformation of, uh, you know, the surface there. I mean, it, that might be the case. There is an image you can find uh, from Eric Berger, and you can see what a confirmed MMOD hit looks like. And it seems like it would look a little bit more like that. I mean, it looks similar, but yeah. it just looks like a nice flat hole. Like there's, it just yeah. didn't like buckle anything or I don't know. It just looks so smooth. It seems to me like it could just be, I'm not saying I believe this, but it, it could just be like, you know, a drill hole. <laughs> I mean, it mm. just kind of looks more like that than it looks like an actual high impact hit. So like n none of us are experts here, but my impression is mm -hmm. actually different. Um, when I look at it, I see an irregular hole. It's not a nice round circular hole like you'd expect from a drill. And it, uh, <laughs> notably, there are no uh, sk uh, skid marks from the drill, like the drill skipping around, like mm -hmm. um, what happened on the interior of a Soyuz uh, back in, I think, 2018, which was definitely a drill. Um, like, joking aside, though, like, the edges of the hole are a little ragged. Like, there's a, a dark circle that surrounds the hole. And it's not the same width all the way around. The diameter of the hole isn't nice and round. And like, it, it looks like a debris strike to me. I would like a better image. That would be great. Um, yeah. like really up close. That would be great to have. Um, I, I think that would seal it. Katya Paluvchenko on Twitter. We've cited them before. Uh, Catline Gray is the handle. Uh, they posted six photos of other progress vehicles that have sort of this bromine brown staining that we see around this impact hole or or this hole and like around this hole it's it's very very dense staining and on the other progresses it it's not as dense um but it tends to surround protruding features on the skirt of the engine bay uh, or the engine compartment and I don't, I don't know what would cause. It, it almost looks like it's something that leaks out from seams, uh, which seems ridiculous to me. My my initial instinct, if I didn't know the context of this, is that it's propellant residue. You know, you get particles flying around; they can build up on on surfaces. But it's not like these stains exhibit like a uh, you know a, a leeward side and a windward side kind of an effect. It's. Uh, it's, it's really, really unusual, but, you know, at very least it tells us that whatever, uh, assuming it's the cyclopentadiene, whatever <laughs> radiator fluid, <laughs> um, uh, assuming it's that, then it means that it, that stuff leaks a lot. I guess it would be my it would be my guess my my interpretation. If you if you zoom out a little bit, there's the there's the little um, bracket that's off to the side. And if you look around the bracket opposite the hole, to me, that looks like the kind of discoloration you see naturally appearing on these progresses based mm -hmm. on Katya's other images that she shared on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And then there's this darker, crustier discoloration yeah. around the hole. Yeah. With, with them side by side, you're right. It is a slightly different color, isn't it? So, okay. So that, that means that we can discard that the splashy gassy kind of deposits as being something else maybe uh glue off gassing is causing some staining or something maybe something in the mm. manufacturing price but that's that seems normal and then this you're right is a totally different color or or at least yeah yeah or, or there's at least enough of it being deposited on the surface to give it a different color and different profile and look to it good point yeah, yeah. um also huh. something to note is that the 
um, is that the hole seems to be the exit hole in the the photo that uh, Eric posted. So I don't know, man. It's just, well, it's weird. It? it looks like it is to me, but you know, there's probably going to be an entry hole and an exit hole, right? Like there's, it's not unusual that there is an exit hole. So, and then again, you know, stepping back, the, the, the big picture is that this had happened. And just based on this photo alone, uh, a debris strike seems like a perfectly reasonable conclusion. That's the whole story. Um, although Anatoly Zach did tweet, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of serious. <laughs> this uh, saying that uh, a debris strike is what caused your spacecraft to fail is kind of the uh, the on-orbit equivalent of saying uh, the dog ate my homework. And so <laughs> it's it's a kind of a blame-free way for uh, a failing. But uh, again, with that deep, this happening during the depressurization for the spacewalk, that always seemed a little suspicious. And now it's even more suspicious. And right, the idea, I think, is that there is some kind of actual design flaw because Progress MS-21, which was sitting on the zenith side of the Russian segment uh, attached to Poisk, it was there. It's living its best life. And then a new <laughs> Progress comes, MS-22, and docks at the uh, aft end of Zvezda. And like half an hour, an hour later, suddenly there's a leak on that earlier Progress and it's in the same general spot. And after um, it, they, they've now deorbited it. I think it, like as of this recording, it deorbited hours ago. Um, they, they checked it out with the space station uh, uh, cannon arm too, but then they released it and deorbited it, doing a 180 degree pirouette to kind of let the station uh, get a good look at it from its cameras. And there is definitely not a big brown smudge with a bullet hole in the middle of it like there is on the Soyuz. And yet it still sprung a coolant leak like the other one and, and basically just leaked out all of its fluid um, from that from that loop. I thought it was neat. They, they talked about potentially moving it over to Prechal, which is on the uh, nader side of the station. So 180 degrees, uh, it's, that's the node sticking to the end of Nauka. Uh, but they were like, nah, forget it. We'll just deorbit it. And so... They did. It's um, you know, it's now been incorporated into our upper atmosphere. Uh, but um, to me, it seems like it has to be a design flaw or something similar. They they had both been on orbit for similar lengths of time when they both sprung the leaks, eighty to one hundred days or so. And so, what I need to know though is like, how do you end up getting a hole like you do in the Soyuz if it is a design flaw, and whether that's the the hole in that two thousand eighteen uh, inside of a Soyuz that you mentioned earlier, Ben? That was that was able to evade inspection for so long because I guess there was some kind of covering or something that eventually came loose. And so I don't know if that's a way to do this. I don't know if having some kind of overpressure vent within the loop caused a little piece of debris to shoot out like a little bullet, <laughs> uh, yeah. piercing the hole from the inside going out. I have no idea uh, that kind of stuff. How I don't know enough about the, the cooling system for it to work, but or to, yeah, how it works to figure out that kind of thing. But, uh, I guess we got to sit around and see how that new, the latest progress fares, <laughs> right? Are we going to have to wait a few months and then find that it springs another <laughs> yeah. coolant leak? And so you said that they did inspect the progress leak? Uh, yeah, but they have not. Um, that hasn't been uh, released, like the high resolution images. And it took weeks for us to get this one that Roscosmos uh, released mm. that we're talking about. But my understanding is that they moved Canada Arm over to the uh, forward end of Zarya to be able to reach it and check things out. Yeah, and Pirouette is kind of interesting. Uh, this is a quote from RussianSpaceWeb.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, on the morning of February 17th, NASA officials said that shortly after its undocking from the ISS, Progress MS-21 would be commanded by cosmonaut Sergei Propiev and Dmitry Pelotin at the Toru console inside the Zvezda service module, the ISS, to turn 180 degrees for the additional inspection of the leak area on the cargo ship using the station's cameras. At the time, specialists still evaluated images of the damage obtained by the Canadarm2, and the investigation of the cause of the leak was ongoing, according to NASA. So, pure what? I mean, like, they, they only had to rotate at 180 degrees, so I guess they... They were pretty happy with the images that they got, and they just wanted to see the other side of it, which is kind of surprising. I would have thought they would have just had it go into a slow roll and had somebody lean out a window and snap away. 
Yeah, I found some video from Sci News on YouTube that's sped up, which is kind of convenient, but yeah, it shows it's spinning. And just by eyeballing it, um, I'm not sure exactly where the leak is, but if you look at the service module as it spins around, you see some of that discoloration around protruding ends like you talked about, or protruding bits, and you, I don't see a big brown smudge that shows a, uh, a bullet hole. But Yeah, so we'll, I'll, I'll probably end up putting a, Grabbing a GIF out of this and putting in the show notes, but the that's uh, a good idea. It's the the Sci News <laughs> channel is just mirroring um, NASA TV, like a bunch of people do. I mean, I don't think this is NASA TV. I think this is Ross Cosmos's stream, but I think they're just rehosting a bunch of stuff. And so finally, um, there was some reporting that the Soyuz MS twenty three, which we talked about as an upcoming spaceflight event, right? Uh, this was supposed to launch today uh, slash tomorrow, depending on which side of the planet you live on. But um, there was some reporting that it was delayed to early March, but I think that uh, has been stepped back by the, uh, you know, I, I don't think Roscosmos didn't say that, but I think that they kind of then pulled back from it or something. Because uh, since then, it sounds like they are actually now targeting uh, later this week um, to, to launch it. So that would be rolling it out tomorrow, February 21st. And um, uh, the launch itself taking place on February 24th. Because the original idea for delaying it all the way to March was to give investigators more time to study leak number two on the progress, right? The, the second of these leaks. And um, make sure that the Soyuz that they're sending up, even if it's uncrewed, it's supposed to be the lifeboat for people. And so make sure it's not going to spring a leak as well a few months from now. But they uh, they looked at it. They didn't see any holes with patches over it. Uh, and so that's good, at least. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're moving forward with the launch now. They feel, I guess, confident that it'll uh, it'll work out. All right. So uh, let's translate over to a second topic for this episode. So Launcher 1, we, uh, we have some information about their failure. Uh, that was back in January. And this was a uh, Notably, the I believe what the first orbital launch from Western Europe, even though it wasn't really you know from Western Europe. I mean, it also wasn't successful. So <laughs> yeah, it also didn't make it to orbit. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's just not a lot of info. This could have been a short and sweet, but whenever I see failure analysis, you know that I just I get sucked in, and mm. I'm like, okay, let me make this a let me write this as bullet points rather than a paragraph, and hopefully, I'll just find enough to make it. <laughs> worth it. It kind of wasn't, but um, right. So the launch attempt was on January 9th. Um, they launched out of Spaceport Cornwall. And it it's pretty simple. A filter in the fuel line for the Newton 4 on the second stage uh, dislodged. This is a $100 part that crashed the mission, and that sucks. <laughs> um, they said uh, that it caused mischief downstream. So what that means is um, the the filter dislodged which started choking off uh, fuel. Uh, they said the fuel pump operated at a degraded efficiency level, uh, but basically it starved the engine of fuel, which caused the engine to overheat. Um, kind of interesting. Like, you don't often think of restricting a propellant as being something that would overheat an engine, but really what it's doing is causing the engine to run oxygen-rich, uh, which is hotter. And so the um, the engine started overheating, but the engine wasn't the issue. There were other components uh, in the vicinity of the engine, and the press release from uh, Virgin Orbit said... Um, downstream and in the vicinity of the overheating engine. And uh, I don't know how many components are downstream of an engine, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think what they might mean is downstream of the pump. Uh, I'm not sure. But anyway, you can totally understand how this would start overheating unrelated components in as much as any component is unrelated to an engine on a rocket. Um, but other components started to overheat, and those other components failed or at least malfunctioned, and that's what led to the failure um, not the uh, not the engine itself. So that uh, malfunction wound up shutting down the engine, um, and you know they just they don't make it to orbit. And there's uh, a couple of photos of uh, the reentry. It's kind of pretty. And uh, last but not least, they uh, were very clear on all the normal uh, caveats and provisos. Uh, we're still testing to confirm this. We're also looking at other possibilities. We're still, you know, doing the investigate. Da, 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 da. So just uh, disclaimer, not 100% certain, but 
you know, as, as close as we're going to get, probably. Launcher One has another flight scheduled, or has another flight on the books. I think they unscheduled it. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was scheduled before. It's, it's not scheduled now, I believe. Uh, okay. but the next flight, uh, whenever it happens is going to be out of Mojave. Uh, they haven't yet announced who the customer is, but, uh, ho- hopefully they'll f- figure out, like, <laughs> why, why this would happen. I mean, it seems really weird that, uh, that a filter would dislodge, but um, filters happen sometimes. And, and if I could just say the quote that he, uh, uh, the this is Dan Hart, uh, Virgin Orbit's chief executive, uh, talking at the Small Set Symposium. <laughs> the way he describes it, I don't know, I think this is hilarious. He says, everything points to, right now, a filter that was clearly there when we assembled the rocket, but was not, but was not there as the second stage started. <laughs> Uh, meaning it was dislodged and caused mischief downstream like i'm assuming that was the kind of inflections he used because that just yeah that is i love that line wow that's really good man so it, it almost sounds like i mean it sounds like it dislodged before the second stage started up which like really sucks because that means that it dislodged without fuel flow just acceleration so yeah i'm good yeah that that's interesting that whole idea about components downstream and in the vicinity of the abnormally hot engine eventually malfunctioning <laughs> wonder if the, <laughs> you think maybe that just means the um uh downstream of the chamber and so maybe like yeah. the throat started getting it's gotta be the you know, yeah, maybe the the bell through or, or i want to know more about the engine cycle do we know because i'm trying to find it but i don't know much about a newton four like what it, before this i had never i couldn't have told you what launcher one's engines were well it it's kind of silly because the second stage i believe is newton two and it's got a newton four engine on it yeah so so they yeah all the information yeah on wikipedia is just that it's a RP1 locks combo. They don't even quote the ISP. So you're saying that because the oxygen or the fuel was restricted, it was running oxygen rich, which I guess is another, is another way of saying it was just running closer to stoichiometric, and that is why, because I guess like optimally it shouldn't be. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know what the fuel to locks ratio normally is, like if you're using RP1, but I, I mean, I'm sure it's not. You know, it's not one to one because I was wondering if maybe it was some part of the cycle, like if it were something like an expander cycle. And I, and I don't know if this would if this is what would happen, then say the fuel is also acting as the coolant, then you can totally see how that would cause it to overheat. Oh, yeah, um, that makes things even yeah, worse like than, if it was restricted. than running oxygen, even running oxygen rich and then not cooling efficiently. Like, it's a yeah, but then again, that would also, yeah. I mean, in an expander cycle, I guess that would also just stop the engine too. But, oh, yeah. um, but I mean, that was just an example because the plumbing is so complex. I mean, who can say what would happen? So totally, I mean, it can happen any number of ways it seems. But uh, I, I guess for this, yeah, it was just that it was running oxygen rich, which makes sense if you have a, a filter that was clearly there when we <laughs> when we packed the thing. The filter was there. But evidently, wasn't there when they tried to ignite. Second stage. I swear, I packed a filter. Yeah. <laughs> So this week, let's do four short and sweets. And Dennis, what is the first? H3 rocket aborts at pad. After JAX's H3 launch vehicle lit its main LE9 engine while in its mobile launch pad at Tanegashima Space Center, the rocket's side boosters failed to ignite and the launch was aborted. This long-awaited maiden flight of the new vehicle was already delayed several years due to issues with the LE9 engine, which included cracked turbine blades in the turbo pump assembly and a hole seared into the engine's combustion chamber wall. While the LE9 seemingly performed well on the attempted launch, JAXA has stated that it will examine the situation that led to the abort and provide further information on its website once available. And then next up, plans for Starship comeback to shore. According to Gwen Shotwell, SpaceX has put its plans for offshore Starship launch platforms on hold. The two former rigs, Phobos and Deimos, purchased by SpaceX for this purpose were recently sold to an unknown buyer. This decision to abandon the offshore launch concept came after it was decided that SpaceX needs to better understand Starship as a routine launch vehicle before moving launch locations off dry land. However, the ultimate goal remains launching many starships from offshore locations where FAA restrictions will be less severe. All right, next, Blue Origin wins Escapade contract. Blue Origin was awarded a $20 million contract as part of the Venture Class Acquisition of Dedicated and Rideshare Program, or VADER, the company's first interplanetary contract. The prior VADER award went to Phantom Space to launch four CubeSat-class missions on its Daytona rocket. Blue Origin's contract is for launching Escapade, a pair of small spacecraft built by Rocket Lab. Named Blue and Gold, the spacecraft will study Mars's magnetosphere. 
Blue aims to launch Escapade on a new Glen in late 2024. And fourthly, Launcher's orbital transfer vehicle fails on orbit. The first orbital test vehicle, or OTV, from Launch Services startup Launcher failed shortly after deployment on its Falcon 9 Transporter 6 mission earlier this year. The OTV could not orient itself properly due to a fault in the company's GPS antenna system, so its solar cells failed to generate power. The payloads on board were unable to be deployed. The launcher achieved a number of internal mission objectives, communicating with the vehicle for the duration of its battery life, and hopes to succeed on its next OTV mission. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections, and a cool event that we kind of missed. Um, so we have an email from Nate Perkins, who has some really cool, interesting, I guess you might say inside knowledge. Uh, we have some interesting information on the RS-25 that I, I guess we didn't talk about, right? No, I hadn't heard about this. I had seen it referenced as a news thing that they were testing the RS-25, but I didn't realize the full uh context and ramifications uh, until uh, Nate had sent this email. And so, yeah, it, rather than just being an RS-25 test, this is a completely, there's entirely new hardware, including the nozzle, which is a, you know, a big part of the RS-25s. And so uh, it was also full duration um, and it was super successful. And there's really, really awesome video of it um, available that we'll share in the show notes. And so, uh just, yeah, need to point out that this was such a big uh, uh, certification for the, um, you know, these RS-25s, the new ones that are going to be on future SLS Artemis missions. So when was the last RS-25 engine certified? Like it would have been before the end of the shuttle program and probably a couple of years, right? Well, I guess the certification, I mean, I guess it depends on what that means specifically because did they have to certify the old ones, but more recently? Oh, like recertify them? I, I mean like the, yeah, the first, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean like the first certification in the life, not a, uh, like a construction, like a flight readiness firing. Yeah. Not, not like a refurbish certificate i'm sure that certification i'm guessing that certification specifically means that so basically what when was the last i mean not exactly when but like when was the last rs25 built during the shuttle program and when was that certified so the email uh i think you know we'll just read uh read a big parts of it that kind of highlight the uh the, the things that uh, he was pointing out to us the first certification test of a new rs25 engine uh was on uh February 8th, 2023. There really hasn't been good coverage, sadly, so it was pretty easy to miss. Yes, we did the quote-unquote confidence test in December, but that was just a quick shakedown test before the new nozzle was installed. The test last week was newly manufactured hardware, including the nozzle, which is made completely differently from the old SSME nozzle. The test was full duration, hit the target test window without a scrub or push, and was very successful, which is vital in proving and certifying the new restart design. And then the final paragraph of that email really got me. <laughs> full disclosure, I'm biased. And I think what he means is uh, biased in terms of how cool this is. Um, and this may be a bias, but I totally agree with the conclusion. This is very cool. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, I'm biased because I'm a senior combustion devices engineer, design engineer, working on the RS-25 nozzle, and I am the designated overseer of that nozzle unit, including its production. Seeing it finally light up and nominally was really something special. Yeah, I would imagine that's really, really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nate, for writing writing in. This uh this was a really cool email to to get. And I was kinda like, Oh, it's there there are a class of emails that I don't reply to right away because I feel guilt or pressure or anxiety about something. And then there's an entirely different class of emails that I don't reply to immediately because I'm overwhelmed by how cool they are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh luckily there I've gotten a decent number of those classed emails uh, in the last year, but this one was one of them. This was really cool. Um, I read it on my phone and immediately closed my phone and like put the phone on the other side of the couch and I was just like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> it was very cool. Um, we also had um, BRQ weeks of Orcasat fame in our discord post, a link to a YouTube video on their channel. Uh, it's, it's like a month old YouTube video, but I hadn't seen it. Uh, I don't, uh, it slipped through my subscriptions cause I've got a lot that I don't watch most of them. 
Because there are a lot of channels where I'm like, I like this one feature that they do once a week. So I got to subscribe and get all their videos. But I missed it. And I'm glad that Bjarki posted it because it was very cool. It's just like a summary video of the Orcasat mission. Uh, it has footage of the launch, of the deployment, um, of the team receiving their first packets back from the satellite, uh, of the team uh, popping champagne on the roof next to the antenna that we talked so much about. Uh, and it's, it's just a very cool, like, um, yeah, summation, uh, success excitement video. Um, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes and I recommend you watch it cause it was very entertaining. Okay. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We got just three winners and we have two with full bonus points, which would be uncle Willie and the Greek and then Psykyle, who is, I guess, a correct guess, but not a full points or whatever guess. Yep, correct guess, but not bonus points. And the clue was nothing some whiteout or tipex can't fix. Yep. Yeah. Cryptic clue. Yeah. So so Psykyle <laughs> uh, got the event correct, but couldn't tell me uh, why the whiteout was necessary. So that's uh. that's how the bonus points broke down this time. All right. This week in spaceflight history is the 24th of February, 2009. It's the loss of the Orbiting Carbon Observatory. Uh, OCO was lost during launch. Uh, it was launched on a Taurus XL uh, 3110T8 was also included in the in the Wikipedia. And I don't, I don't know. Oh, I know why. Because it's the T8 mission. That's why. Uh, T8 was in parentheses. And I was like, is that another uh, variant? Uh, specification? No, no, it was the T8 mission. Uh, Taurus XL uh, is now what we call Minotaur C, same vehicle. And back then, Taurus was flown by uh, Orbital, and then Orbital ATK, and now Northrop Grumman. What do they call it? Is it, is it NG Orbital? I can't yeah, keep track of it. Some kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> space science. Uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. So, yeah, space science orbity something. Okay, so what's interesting about uh, the loss of OCO is that we didn't know what happened until years later. Um, there was a mishap investigation that happened, and then, oh, Dennis, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> NG space <laughs> systems. <laughs> um, so the the investigation board uh, said, "Hey, the fairing didn't uh, didn't separate properly," um, and that was kind of it. Two years later, uh, three years later, in 2011, uh, the Glory mission also failed uh, in the same way on the same vehicle, and that mishap investigation. Uh, failed to determine a root cause as well. Um, well, you get, you know, two ducks, you start looking for a pond. That's, that's a saying that I just made up on the spot. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, NASA's launch services, uh, uh, decided to go ahead and do an investigation. And they used, you know, both investigation reports as their starting place. And then just like, blossomed out a bunch of different potential causes and then collapsed uh, those down by eliminating them one by one until they got to the actual root cause, which turned out to be the same root cause for both launch failures. But uh, they didn't actually release their findings until 2015. Um, and a major bit of evidence that they collected wasn't collected until 2014. So, you know, going from 2009 to 2014 before you really have a nail in the coffin really tells you uh, how how tough this one was uh, to nail down. Yeah. So uh, basically what happened is the, the fairings didn't separate. And so the upper stage was pushing more mass than it was intended to uh, and just ran out of gas before it got to orbit. The question is, why didn't the fairings separate? One of the first things that they looked at was uh, the potential that the uh, charge holders contracted uh, due to cold temperatures. So the charge holder, uh, obviously it holds a charge, but um, it is set into the frangible joint that runs along the seam where the two clamshell halves of the fairing separate. Um, that rail is made out of aluminum and uh, it connects the two sides together. 
So you have uh, a, a a charge that explodes and begins a fracture, and that fracture uh, propagates all the way up and down the rail. Um, there's one on the front. There's one on the back. Um, and I, I don't believe that those rails connect to the top, and I believe that each one has uh, just one charge holder. Uh, I'm... I might be incorrect about that, but I, I'm, I think I'm, I'm correct. I haven't seen any drawings, but working on the descriptions, I think that's correct. Um, right. So the charge holder, uh, not only holds the charge in place, like it gives you a place to put it, but it's also like characterized in a way that we understand how much energy it's delivering to the joint itself. Um, it, it's kind of this, you know, it's an engineered part that has to be just a certain way. And so there are specifications on it that have to be followed precisely so that the design validation actually applies to the situation. And part of that is in the manufacturing, but the other part of it is how you treat uh, the materials. And so the follow-up board, like like the Voltron report that's, that's uh, concluding this, uh, they found that ambient temperatures at launch were enough to shrink the side rail length by 0.38 inches along its length, right? <laughs> so, like, that's not a lot considering how big these fairings are, right? Like, you know, if it's like a, I think it's like a three diameter fair or three meter diameter fairing, something like that, and you know, it's however many meters tall. Like, it, it's a it's a long thing. So it, it shrank by less than half an inch. Um, and that might have been important. They determined that it wasn't. It was not enough to prevent the rail from fracturing in and of itself, but it did reduce the margins available, it made it harder for that rail to fracture. Okay, so we can scratch that one on the, off the list. One of the other things they looked at was uh, extrusion ligament thickness. Now, this is cool. So the ligament is the part that actually fractures in this joint. And this is a good time to talk about aluminum extrusion. Um, this... This rail is made of aluminum, but specifically it's made of extruded aluminum, which is exactly what it sounds like. They take aluminum and press it through a die, just like pasta or Play-Doh, and they make uh, a long shape. Right? They can set the cross-section and then they just squish it out. A, a lot of people are going to be familiar with aluminum extrusions, even if you don't think you are. Like If you have a, a 3D printer, odds are there's an aluminum extrusion in it. Uh, a lot of, you know, robots will have aluminum extrusions, but also, um, there are things like, uh, like an aluminum, um, an aluminum ladder will often be made of aluminum extrusions. Uh, it's like this really common manufacturing method because it's so easy. Like you build the die and then you just, you just squish metal through it. Like <laughs> it's not as easy <laughs> as, a uh, as I might make it sound. Like obviously this is not, you know, this is not Play-Doh, but like relatively speaking, like it, it's, it's uh, pretty easy. You can produce a lot with not a lot of effort. So anyway, these rails were uh, aluminum extrusions and it turns out that the shape of these rails changed uh, between batches. As you go through time, uh, the shape slowly changed, not by a lot between the period of 1992 and 2000, when these things were being manufactured, um, over that period of time, the ligament thickened by three to four thousandths of an inch, which is like literally the width of a hair, right? Like this is very, very uh, minimal change. And I really love what caused this change because it's this overtime between batches thing. It's exactly what you think it is. The dye wore out. Maybe the die should have been replaced, um, and eventually it probably would have been. But uh, in this case, the the parts were still within spec. This thickness change wasn't uh, enough to make it not match what the drawing said it should be. But that was only up to 2007. And the reason that I'm picking 2007 here is because that is the latest date that the rails on these two Taurus launches would have been made. Um, the company that made these continued to make uh, this exact same aluminum extrusion later. Um, and after 2007, uh, those parts actually started going out of spec. The wear was great enough that they were thicker uh, than they should have been. And 
like not just on the high end of the range, but like actually out of spec. But as of 2007, they were on the high side of spec, but they weren't out of spec. And the investigation decided um, that it wasn't enough to cause failure, but just like the uh, charge holder contraction, it was enough to reduce the margins um, and maybe in conjunction with something else could have made a difference. Those are two issues that were raised and shown to be valid, but not sufficient. There was also another possible uh, cause that was found to not have been an issue at all. And this is really cool. Uh, I almost didn't write about this until I read some more about it. And I was like, okay, this is actually a, a cool little uh, rabbit hole. Uh, so the issue was charge holder slumping and, this was a theory that was brought up by Orbital, uh, the people who actually launched the vehicle in their investigation. They said, okay, well, these charge holders are rubber. Um, they're put into the aluminum extrusion, but the holder itself is, is made out of rubber. And they said, well, rubber is, you know, deformable in a way that aluminum isn't particularly. What if the charge holder changed shape um, during the launch? And they found that if the charge holder slumped, and actually uh, ATK theorized that the slump would cause an issue, it was actually confirmed later on uh, by a national laboratory, no less, uh, that slumping would uh, cause these rails to not fracture properly. But the problem is that no slumping actually occurred. Orbital tested to see if slumping could have occurred, and they found, yeah, it, it could have occurred. And then NASA came back and looked at their test methods and said, wait a minute, <laughs> these aren't, we're not testing as we fly. Let's go ahead and retest this. They redid the test and they found, oh, this, this wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have been an issue. But here, here's what I really love is how Orbital tested this and came up with the incorrect conclusion that it might have happened during the flight. They needed two things. They needed acceleration and they needed vibration to replicate uh, flight conditions. <laughs> their vibration was provided uh, by a concrete shaker concrete shaker sorry got the emphasis on the wrong syllable um, <laughs> but they you know they have this sh the shaker and they said okay great now we need acceleration so they got a centrifuge and they set it all up and ran the experiment the problem is that um, the shaker didn't produce uh, the correct frequency or magnitude of vibrations. The centrifuge was too small, uh, which means that it had a large acceleration curve. Uh, there's more acceleration applied to the bottom than to the top of the sample that they put in. They didn't do it in a controlled environment, so it was outdoors, and it was likely too hot, which could make the uh, the rubber more pliable. And finally, NASA kind of considers this a nail in the coffin. I don't think I buy it as, as strongly as I do, but then again, I'm not an engineer. They said, well, on each of these two flights, only one of the two rails failed to fracture. And if the issue, if the root cause was the acceleration uh, causing these things to deform, then both of them should have failed because the acceleration was applied equally. I don't think I really buy that because if it's marginal, you know, it, it could happen in one case and not the other. And you're only rolling the dice four times. Like, how, how crazy is this? But they, they said, you know what, this is a, we've actually like rerun some of these tests we've decided no this this wasn't it okay so the actual root cause was the material properties of these aluminum extrusions i said that some of the uh, important evidence was collected in 2014 well that evidence was materials testing that they did initially they did materials testing on recovered fragments of the fairings recovered from the ocean right so these things are like mangled, literally have been exposed to high temperatures, low pressures, impact with the ocean, and like literally somebody tried to blow them up. Like <laughs> that's the whole point. <laughs> and so they, they did some initial tests. Things didn't look great. So they went digging and they realized that these parts had been produced by a company and then shipped to a machine shop that did additional processing on them. And then the machine shop handed over the final products to Orbital. And so they went back to that machine shop and they keep uh, all their offcuts and they have them all, you know, set aside in individual uh, 
cubbies or something. And so uh, they found the ones from this project and then they measured them and found the ones that were the correct length uh, to have been from the, the side, the, the rails that actually crack, but also the base rings for the fairings were made out of the same extrusion. So they grab those, they take them back um, and they run them through testing and they find, Hey, these things don't break the way they should. My understanding is that they weren't brittle enough. They were too stretchy and they, they should have had higher tensile strengths, um, which would, you know, higher tensile strength is stronger, but also more brittle. Um, and, uh, their, their tensile strength was too low, which means that they were not as brittle. They, it was easier to tear them like, like something, you know, like rubber or gum or something, uh, rather than having them fracture like silly putty. Yeah. I, I love the story of, you know, we searched all over and finally we found the materials that we needed. They were in an off cuts pile at a machine shop, but actually it turns out that orbital had their own parts. Um, they had received multiple aluminum extrusions for within the same order that both of these flights came out of. And they had a third that they had set aside, uh, to build a spare fairing. Um, so they had like an entire set of these things lying around. Those were also out of spec. And then something in my memory says that there was a yet another source that they used, but I don't have it in my notes anymore. So maybe I'm just making that up. Uh, but anyway, uh, all these tests, these, um, out of specification tests showed that, yeah, this is not just like the high end. <laughs> this is so far out of spec that this is totally sufficient on its own, whether or not the extrusion or the, uh, the ligament thickness changed, whether or not the charge holder contracted, uh, in the cold doesn't matter. Uh, this, uh, material property issue was enough to cause the failure. So now we get out of the engineering and we get into the corporate intrigue. Uh, mm. the company that I have avoided saying the name of is, uh, hydro extrusions or SAPA extrusions or SAPA profiles depends on what point in time you're looking at and whether you're talking about a particular company or their parent company. Um, they have a couple of different shops. Um, they have one in Portland, had one in Portland. They had another one. I don't remember where the other one was, but this is, you know, a fairly large corporation here. You know, it's not one of those teeny tiny, uh, shops that runs off of government contracts all the time. Uh, like they make a lot of parts for a lot of different people. They were found to be at fault and they wound up settling, uh, in a civil lawsuit. Uh, they wound up paying $46 million. Um, they were debarred from ever contracting for a government entity again. And, uh, one of their employees, well, a bunch of their employees were fired. One of their employees actually went to jail. We'll talk about him more later. Um, what they did was very, very bad. They, for 20 years, <laughs> for 20 years, they had been, uh, falsifying their test data. So NASA did this, uh, this big study, um, and OIG got involved. Um, so NASA's OIG goes to the contractor w when they started suspecting that there was an issue with the contractor, they go to the contractor and they start pulling records and, um, they ended up walking away with at least seven handwritten documents that were later used in court. Um, but NASA's testimony says that, um, and I say testimony because this was settled. Um, they didn't, um, they didn't find fault in the company, uh, because that's what a settlement is. I, I understand that this was a really good settlement to make. Hydro did, uh, a lot of cooperation kind of stuff, and it's probably good to reward that. Also, the fact that they're going to be debarred means that it really doesn't matter whether or not you find them guilty. They're probably, they're going to have to change dramatically in order to be able to survive without government contracts. And then they cooperated, but they, they also did something perspective, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, but in any event, NASA alleges that, um, one of their plant managers was in charge of this falsification effort. And they say that he made thousands 
of or that that they found thousands of handwritten alterations to failing test results. So they produce their material, they run it through tests, and they write down the test results on a sheet of paper. And when it looks like they're like these numbers are going to fail, they would go in and change them. Hence the whiteout, right? Um, they would change them by hand and then hand them over to the office. The office would type them up and send them to the customers and the customers were getting bad data. That is outright falsification of records. Um, later on when they switched over to digital records, they also, uh, NASA alleges that they found evidence of digital records also being altered, which like, I, I don't know which is worse at this point that they had, they had these records sitting in a filing cabinet with evidence of fraud on them that that's really bad um altering data in a database where fingerprints abound is also a really bad idea and i I truly don't know which is worse so so that's uh sorry just 20 years of uh, i know fraud (laughs) it sounds like leads to overconfidence both 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 analog and digital fraud like Mm. the old school and the, (laughs) the new school pretty remarkable yeah i mean you know once you've been doing it for a couple of years it's hard to stop like jokingly you know it's it's hard to quit but like for real if you have failed to make updates to your manufacturing methods it's tough okay so that's like the outright falsification category uh they also altered their test procedures um the main test procedure that matters in this particular case is the tensile strength test which is where you take a coupon uh which is a uh precisely defined shape of your material and you basically put it to, between two hooks and you pull it until it breaks they did a bunch of things altering their test procedures um something that seems a little more innocuous is they changed the speed of the testing machine so that it pulled faster, um, which should lead to uh, an apparent lower tensile strength, I would imagine. But, you know, you could see somebody uh, not understanding how important that part of the test is and doing that just in an effort to speed things up and get through with their day faster. That's, you know, in this case is not forgivable, but like you could see a situation where that wasn't a big deal. Uh, the less innocuous thing that they did to alter their tests was they just used coupons of the wrong shape. They just cut, you know, they said, okay, well, the official test article that we're supposed to use is failing this test. Let's just cut it into a different shape. And I'm assuming, you know, they cut a narrow neck into it or something. Uh, but like, boy, that's, that's really hard to, to hide behind. So that, uh, is what NASA called, uh, discrepant material where you get bad material properties, but no falsified records, falsified tests, but not falsified records. And then there was a a third category. They cherry picked their test data, which just is also unforgivable. They have at least uh, one instance where a batch of material was delivered and the testing records showed um, that they did. They were required to do two tests um, the same test twice on two different samples. One sample succeed, one sample passed, one sample failed, and they shipped it anyway. Was, yeah, that you can't hide there. So the manager who coordinated all this um, not only um, did a lot of the handwriting, uh, ha- handwritten alterations himself, but he also uh, trained his staff to either falsify records or incorrectly perform test procedures. Uh, but, you know, he had other people doing this. It wasn't just him working on his own uh, after hours. This manager was sentenced to three years in jail, and he was ordered to pay $170,000 in restitution, which, you know, is nothing compared to $46 million worth of settlement. But for a single person, like that's a, a devastating amount of money. And NASA actually came to conclusions about why all of this was done because, um, you know, it's a, it's a fair amount of work to conceal inconsistencies in, in your work product. Like maybe it's less effort than actually fixing the issues, but it's still not no effort. Um, so, of course, this avoided uh, loss of product, right? They don't have to scrap batches that don't come out right. Uh, it avoids loss of time. You don't have to remake those batches. 
Uh, it improved corporate profits. But what I think is really important is that th- this company had production bonuses that were partially based on production metrics. So individuals were, were motivated to go to either start doing this or go along with this happening because it meant more money for individuals. Um, and like, that's really, we, we can talk about the personhood of corporations all we want, but ultimately it's individual people making these decisions. And that's a, that's a very clear motive. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's your This Week in Space Flight History. Well, thank you, Ben, for that uh, twist if that uh, uh, does something that we don't typically get, which is uh, hardware as well as intrigue mm-hmm. in corporate. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just crimes essentially being committed. And so, uh, David, uh, next week is the 20th of February to the 6th of March. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. So next week in 1995... Everyone get off the phone. I need to log into space. (laughs) I absolutely do love this clue. And so uh, for all of you AOL era uh, listeners out there, as well as everybody else, if you think you know what the answer to that clue is or what that event is referencing, you can tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF or send us an email and good luck. Good luck. All right. So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got a bunch of those uh, this week, actually. So pretty busy week for launches. Yes. So the first of many launches this week. Uh, Long March 3, uh, B slash E. And so that means that it's got a three, it's a three stage with four strap on boosters and uh, just has, uh, it's just one of the versions, I guess. It's not quite a 3B, which uh, it sounds like the only difference between it and a 3B is it's it lengthened. Yeah. E is probably oh, maybe that's extended. the E for extended. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. And uh, in any event, it's going to be heaving ChinaSat 26, which is a high throughput K band communication satellite um, that's going to ultimately be going to GEO. And so this launch will has a or this launch has a window on February twenty third at eleven thirty nine UTC to thirteen fifty four UTC, and it'll be flying out of Shichang Satellite Launch Center uh, in China. Then after that, on the same day, we have a Starlink launch. So this is for Group Six One. Yep, just another batch launching on a Falcon Nine Block Five uh, that is launching from Cape Canaveral Space Launch Complex Forty or Slick Forty, and the liftoff time for that this time it is eighteen thirty-seven UTC. So I know that last week it was from there was one from Vandenberg and it had a launch window and we couldn't figure that out. Don't know if we ever came to any consensus about what that was about, but this mm. one makes sense. After that, we have Soyuz MS-23 flying. This is the uncrewed Soyuz that's going up to replace uh, Soyuz MS-22. It's flying on a Soyuz 21A on Friday, February 24th at 24, uh, 34 hours UTC. Uh, that would be the same day as the one-year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. Yep. <laughs> And then next, I, I, I gotta say it. Like, sorry, sure. <laughs> it's just it's got to be pointed out. That's real tactless. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then a few hours later, also on February twenty fourth, we've got a Long March two C, which is a uh, a smaller vehicle than the three B E, um, just a two stager. And uh, this one will be taking an undefined or unspecified payload to an unspecified orbit. Uh, and in this case, uh, again, February 24th, uh, with a window from 0354 to 0424 UTC. And, and this one will be launching out of Jiuquan in China. And then after that, on the 26th, we have Crew 6. And this will be carrying four people to the ISS. We have Stephen Bowen, Woody Hoberg, Sultan Al Nayadi, um, and he is of the United Arab Emirates. And then we have Andrei Fedyaev, uh, who is a Russian cosmonaut. That'll be launching it at 0707 UTC. <laughs> 0707. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that, that's launching from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. And then we also have two backup dates for launch, which would be the 27th and the 28th, and then a rendezvous on the 27th, assuming that the initial launch time goes according to plan. You can watch that on NASA TV. Coverage for that rendezvous will begin at 1 a.m. Eastern Time. The hatch opening is scheduled for 4.35 a.m. And the welcoming ceremony is scheduled for 5.20 uh, Eastern Time. So you can check that out if you want to get up early and watch it if you're on the East Coast. Right. Not doing that. After that, boy, we're, we're still going. After that. Uh, we have OneWeb 17. So this is 48 OneWeb internet satellites going up on a Falcon 9 Block 5. That's launching Wednesday, March 1st at 1944 hours UTC. And then finally, wrapping it all up, we have uh, our 
final event, uh, NASA's Crew-5, uh, their pre-departure news conference. And so this will take place on Wednesday, March 1st uh, at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And so uh, just a reminder, Crew-5 is Nicole Mann, Josh Cassida, Koichi Wakada of JAXA, and Anna Kikuna of uh, Roscosmos. All right. So those are your upcoming space flight events. And that means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Deathkin, Arcade Engineer, The Greek, and Max Headroom for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you soon.